This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the library. We're going to get our panel started today. Uh, today's panel is entitled uh, Race in America, Why Are We Not Talking About America's Number One Issue? Or some, something like that. So today we're going to talk about it. And uh, this is part of our Malcolm X uh, series of events. It's actually our final event uh, for our one book, one college events around Malcolm X. And uh, we started off the year talking about Malcolm X. We talked a little bit about the 60s. Uh, we talked about civil rights. Um, we talked about Islam as a theme within the book. And today is uh, our closing event, really focusing on race and where we've been, where we're going, where we are. Um, so it's going to be an interesting discussion. And I know um, race is a controversial topic, and a lot of us have strong feelings. And I want to remind everybody that we are in an um, educational, grown-up environment where we feel happy to disagree, and we um, encourage discussion and questions, um, but also remember inappropriate ways. And uh, the Bill, who's going to be our... our uh, Moderator will always recognize people with questions and that you uh, make sure that you can be heard, but we do so respectfully. So I know at Moraine we don't have to say that, but as a reminder. So I'll introduce our panel and uh, we'll get started. Starting at the end over there is Assistant Professor of Communications, Delwyn Jones. Um, (laughs) Always attracts a crowd and they never invite her. To his left is Department Chair, Developmental Education and Communications, Professor uh, Bill Muller. To his left, all right, yeah. to his left is Ricky Cobb, Instructor of Sociology. <laughs> to, to his left is Kevin Navertal, Instructor of Political Science. And last but definitely not least is Amy Williamson, Department Chair of Psychology and Assistant Professor of Psychology. So uh, welcome, thanks for coming, and I'll turn it over to Bill. Thank you, Troy. Uh, just so that um, that we can all get engaged in this activity today, I'd like you to each think about how you might be able to answer these two questions. Just think about it. I'm not actually uh, uh, soliciting your responses. First, would you laugh at a racist joke? Or perhaps have you ever laughed? at a racist joke. Second question. Would you date someone of a different race? Questions to think about as we start approaching this topic. Um, I have a, a few questions that I am going to ask of our panel members and each of them will um, give his or her response And after a couple of questions that the panel answers, uh, I will have some more questions, but I will also take any questions that you in the audience might have. First question, and uh, we'll we'll start with Ellen to my right. Are your neighbors members of a different race? Uh, Yes. um, That is something that was kind of uh, it's, it's interesting when, when you ask that because uh, growing up you know I know you I don't know if you guys know about we can be honest today right <laughs> can, we, can we be honest today okay um, 
growing up, um, you know, when uh, certain people of a, of a particular race move into a, a certain neighborhood, there tends to be a change. And uh, I've experienced that. I've seen that uh, directly and indirectly uh, since I was a child. And that's kind of the situation. I live in South Holland, Illinois right now. And that neighborhood, the, the, the racial and ethnic background is changing. But it's still uh, an area that is, is fairly mixed. And uh, I have people from the his, uh, Hispanic culture as neighbors, uh, white, black. So it's a, it's a mixture right now. Uh, at this point, but I've, I've noticed a change. Uh, even when I was in college, we'd go to South Holland. It didn't look the way it does that that, that it does right now. So I see that change. Uh, why is that happening? Uh, I have my theories, but we'll talk about that later. Okay. Ricky, uh, well, the answer to that today would be yes. Um, in the community that I live in, I live in Bolingbrook. Um, you know, there are African Americans, uh, Hispanic persons, uh, Asian people that all live just right on my block. Now, my experience is a little bit different. Um, for those of you that don't know me, you probably hear that uh, I've got a little bit of a twang to my voice. I grew up in Kentucky, yeah. and um, I grew up in an area that was um, certainly there were uh, uh, black kids that I went to school with. Um, that was about the only diversity, however, in the community that I grew up in. It was pretty much a white-black uh, uh, racial difference, and that was about it. And there were black communities and white communities and black churches and white churches. And lots of times we didn't see each other a great deal outside of school or outside of school-related activities. So one of the, one of the changes that I've really embraced in moving to uh, this area about five years ago is that actually I get to, um, you know, lead a, a life where actually diversity is not just some abstract concept, but actually it's, it's something that I'm exposed to every day. And, you know, I think that that's a, been a, a great benefit. I think it's going to be a great benefit for my children. I have two small children and a third on the way. So I look forward to the fact that they are going to be exposed to different cultures and different perspectives, uh, valuable perspectives, uh, from an early age, whereas uh, perhaps, you know, I went through my formative years and, and had to learn these things a, a little bit later in life. So, so the answer to that is yes. Um, however, you know, I wish that it had happened sooner. Kevin? Uh, the answer to that for me would be no. I live in the city of Chicago, but in my direct neighborhood of Roscoe Village, uh, I'm looking around my neighbors, uh, most people are white. Although we, as of last night, had a cougar in our neighborhood, <laughs> we actually uh, have no people of color on the streets directly around where I live which I find surprising. Uh, I grew up in a town in Fremont, Nebraska, where I'd say 99% of the people were white. Uh, and now I live in the city of Chicago, where it's almost completely one-third uh, white, one-third Hispanic, one-third African-American. But yet our neighborhoods are segregated to a degree where most of the neighborhoods throughout Chicago, many of the people are of the same race. I find that very interesting, and it has implications. I don't think I consciously picked out a neighborhood that has people who look like me, but I did pick out a neighborhood that has uh, many restaurants, many services, uh, many of which walking distance, parks, 
and all of these uh, elements to my neighborhood have benefits. And um, I, I think that's why I picked out my neighborhood, and that speaks volumes about the, the segregation in Chicago, about the groups of people who do not have access to the same services that my neighborhood has. Amy? Um, short answer, yes. Uh, my neighbors are of a variety of races. Um, I live kind of on the border between Woodridge and Bolingbrook. And um, I think when I growing up, I grew up um, in the South Side with uh, primarily Caucasian and Latino, which is my family background. Um, I'm from a multiracial family. I have a multiracial family. And so part of our decision um, when when I got married and we were choosing where to live was to find an area that was diverse and that was going to be, um, that would embrace our family, my family. And um, so we actively sought out a neighborhood um, that was diverse. Now, that was difficult um, because I think, as Kevin mentioned, um, much of the Chicago area is segregated um, by race and there are communities where um, there's diversity, but we also had some constraints in terms of jobs, where we were working, and things like that. Um, but I think it was important for us, and it still is, that um, we're in an area where there are differences, and that differences are okay, that differences are embraced, that the school systems are diverse. Um, that's, that's really important, and it's something that we actively looked for. Um, so. Thank you. Amy, you teach uh, psychology, and uh, maybe that gives you some special background to answer this next question. Why is it difficult for most people to discuss racial issues publicly? I think there's a great deal of fear around how we'll be perceived um, based on, for instance, saying, coming out and saying something like, well, I do live in a neighborhood that doesn't have diversity. Um, what, what are the implications of that? What does that say about me? Am I self-segregating? What, what kind of implications then um, are there? So I think there's fear around that. I also think there's discomfort um, about what to say to not sound wrong or to not sound bad. I think there's a lot of um, political correctness that kind of guides people now because I do think race is talked about frequently um, just not publicly I think um, we I know and, and I think there's also part of the also bring in the aspect of um, privilege a little bit that for people in, in minority groups uh, race is a daily issue that's confronted for for Caucasians, it's an issue that sometimes needs to be addressed, sometimes doesn't. For the most part, it really doesn't have to be looked at because I can live in an area where everybody's like me. I can work in an environment where everybody's like me. I can shop in an, in an environment where everybody's like me. So I'm not, I don't have to really look at it. And I think that's another part of it. Kevin? Well, I teach political science and from my vantage point, uh, why don't we talk about race is why, what can we do about it? What can, what can the American government do about some of our race relations and more importantly, some of our inequalities that we continue to have? Um, 
we have a notion of equality in America that everybody has the same opportunity to advance and the same political and and potentially economic uh, opportunities as everybody else. But in reality, we don't. And the government, in looking at many of our inequalities amongst groups of people, tries to do something about it. But many of these programs that uh, they engage in often uh, can be turn more people off than turn people on. In particular, I'm thinking of affirmative action, where we have uh, preferential hiring and, and um, admissions policies to schools based on race and um, to, to try to overcome some of these disadvantages and inequalities. But some people feel that this violates the very definition of equality. And in many ways, this becomes and even uh, you know, perpetuates maybe conflicts between groups of people and their vision of what equality means. So I think sometimes we have a difficulty talking about it uh, because of what we can do about it. And then also, are we looking at the past? Are we looking at the present? Are we looking at the future? And I think different groups of people might be looking at a different uh, scenario, whether it's the past or the, or the uh, future. Thanks. Uh, well, you know, I come from a sociological perspective. Um, you know, I think the first thing we have to try and understand is what is race. Uh, sometimes I'll ask in my uh, intro to social courses, I'll say, you know, what is your definition of race? And it's one of those concepts where I think everybody kind of thinks that they're on the same page. Everybody thinks that, well, I understand what race is. You understand what race is, right? And most people are going to nod their head. Yes, I understand there's this thing that's called race in our society. Uh, but we don't necessarily define it the same way. So that, you know, from my perspective, uh, as a sociologist, the first thing that I try to impress upon people when the subject comes up in my courses is that race is a social construction. Race is there. Uh, because people who lived before us decided that it was there. It's been handed down to us, this concept of race, that there are different races. Uh, you know, the same thing that gives your uh, skin its pigmentation uh, is the same thing that gives your eyes their color. So we could just as easily divide people up in society and say, oh, there are different races. There are the green-eyed people and the blue-eyed people and the brown-eyed people. And immediately you hear that, and probably if you're a sensible person, which I'm sure you are, you think, well, that's ridiculous, that's absurd. Why, how could we divide people up by eye color? And yet that's essentially what we've done. Skin's just a lot more noticeable, obviously. We wear it all over our, our whole body. So the first thing here is to understand that race is a social construction. You know, it, it, it exists merely because uh, it, it became a social construct. So but here we are. I mean, I'm talking about the way things would be in the ideal world, that there would be no concept of race and we would just be over it and we can move on to more productive things like figuring out how people can get health care or, uh, you know, how we can uh, stop barreling through the world doing things that are making us somewhat less than popular. All right, but we wind up dealing with this subject and there's a lot of fear and there's a lot of trepidation and Amy I think was correct when she said that uh, it comes down to perception people fear that they're going to say something wrong or that their opinion is going to be um, misunderstood by someone else and they're going to wind up in a uh, you know a, a boiler uh, dealing with a situation that it's just easier to talk about the weather how about those Cubs or White Sox or whoever you like. <laughs> well, actually, I may have picked up something that's almost as controversial in this city. But 
but uh, just to sum up, uh, you know, I think it's driven a, a lot by ignorance. You know, we, we fear what we don't know. There's no, there's no secret that a lot of the areas of this country uh, where people perhaps harbor uh, high degrees of racial animosity are also areas that are very homogeneous when it comes to race. Lots of times it's things that we don't understand. And when we don't talk about things, that certainly doesn't help the problem. So the more that people don't talk about these issues, and we've got this elephant in the room that's in the room, but nobody wants to bring it up, nobody wants to go there because it's uncomfortable, uh, I think we wind up just polarizing ourselves even more. And the problem, when we don't communicate, gets worse. Delwyn, as a speech teacher, communicator, why do you think we have difficulty talking about race? Well, first of all, racism is, is a, it's like a sickness, you know. Uh, if you have some illness, your body is sick, and, you, and you're afraid that it, it may be something that is going to uh, cause you to be in a bad position, uh, especially men. We, we don't like to, to find out bad news, uh, so you don't go to the doctor. You know, if you think it may be cancer or some other issue, something bad, you avoid it. Uh, racism is something that I think that we try to avoid. This goes back, and, and, and I, I agree it's a social con construct, but it goes back uh, to slavery. And there's some very sensitive issues uh, that we have to deal with. And we are afraid to offend one another. Um, Malcolm X said that the only way, and this is just dealing with the black and white issue, but we have we have multicultural society, but he said the only way that we can really deal with this situation is if uh, a black man and a white man can sit down at the table and talk about this and be honest with one another without that white man being offended and without that or, or feeling that he has to defend himself and without that black man feeling that he can't express himself, that they will be able to have that conversation and talk about some of the real issues that that define uh, what racism is all about. Um, and a lot of people feel they have a lot to lose, you know, dealing with this. If you bring this up and, 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 it's, and it's put out front and you start to really discuss it, some real truths may come out that we have to deal with. Uh, so that is something I think that we're afraid of. When you're unfamiliar with, with another uh, or some other issue, it's kind of difficult to talk about it if you don't know exactly where it's going to go. So um, we have some other questions. I have some other stuff to add to that, too, but I think we're going to get to it a little later. So. Okay. Uh, I have some more questions here, but as I continue to ask questions, if anyone in the audience has a question or a comment that pertains to what we are talking about, if uh, you would feel free to raise your hand, uh, uh, I'll, uh, I'll call upon you as well. Ricky. Have you ever been the victim of discrimination? And if you have, what did you do about it? Well, the answer to that's pretty simple. I don't think that I've ever confronted any degree of discrimination that would be worth talking about. I'm a white male in a white-centric, male-centric society. Uh, that doesn't mean that I don't have personal problems. It doesn't mean that people are coming along and handing me a free ride everywhere I go, but I hardly have encountered any type of discrimination. Sexism? No. Every president's been a male. Six-sevenths of our elected officials in Washington are male. Um, I'm a white man. You know, Every president up until this point has been white. 
Most of our elected officials are white. We've had three African-American senators since the Civil War. Three in almost 150 years. Um, at any given time, about 15% of the Senate, somewhere in the range of 12 to 15% is female. So, no, I'm a Christian white male in a Christian white male society, and I have not experienced discrimination. And I think that, I don't think I have to apologize for that, but I think it's incumbent on me as someone who has not had to deal with the, that particular adversity to be as empathetic as I can to those who have been dealt a different uh, set of cards and do deal with it on a daily basis. See, I think the problem that we run into lots of times in our society is that those who have not dealt with the issue can very easily and maybe not in a um, not in any sort of a, a way in which they're intending to uh, avoid the problem. But I think what happens is, is it's very easy to look the other way. I don't deal with it. And it's very easy to just kind of bury your head in the sand and just think that because I don't deal with it, the problem must not be that bad. And that right there, I can tell you, is uh, that's a slippery slope. Okay, so you need to understand that we do have problems in our society. And I have to admit, I have to admit selfishly, that as a white male, I can talk about topics in this society that maybe persons of color, uh, maybe women in some cases can't talk about so much because I don't think that there's a perception. You know, when we're talking about having a dialogue on important issues, I think one of the things that stops people sometimes from talking about things as frankly as they might like is sometimes there's a perception of, well, what's this person's agenda? What's this person's angle? Okay? As a white guy, I can walk into the classroom and I can call it as I see it. Okay, and nobody's going to look and say, well, you know, he's, he's saying this about uh, white people or he's saying this about men or he's saying this about the social institutions of power because he's, oh, he's a white male. Okay, that doesn't make me right. Okay, it doesn't make me right, but it means that I don't think people are looking to peel back and say, well, where's he coming from? You know, so that, that's, that's a lot of the thing. I mean, the, the, the Malcolm X quote that Delwin shared is really important. To be able to speak as adults about adult issues without the fear that people are going to take it personally. You know, we need to get past that. We need to, I know it's a personal issue and with good reason, but we need to be able to open up a dialogue because when we don't talk about these things, um, we're, we're doing ourselves a great disservice. Delwin, <coughs> excuse me, have you ever been the victim of discrimination and what did you do about it? Uh, no. Ma'am, please. <laughs> I, well, yes. Um, I actually could uh, remember, even in high school, uh, dealing with a lot of different issues. I share some of this with my basketball players, uh, even playing football. You know, dealing with uh, uh, another high school that had a religious background. Uh, you know, getting called the N-word every time I ran the ran the football, you know, little things like that. I mean, that's not discrimination, but that's a part where, and I went to Luther South High School, uh, which was about 50% black, 50% white. And, um, you know, and actually some of my white teammates actually stepped up for me at that time. You know, at that t when I was when, in, the, in the middle of that game, I heard it every time. But in my head, I'm thinking that they're just... They, they can't stop me because I'm a bad dude. Um, <laughs> this is what's going on through my head. But looking back at the social implications of that, you know, some people, 
some people would have really been destroyed by that. I mean, my personality was one where I was I would confront them. I would say some some things back and so forth. My teammates would step up, uh, but I had to deal with that uh, a lot of times. Uh, in college, there were some things that weren't quite fair, in my opinion. Uh, dealing with uh, some issues uh, with our African American Studies program. You know, anytime, and I was a little bit more vocal than some of my classmates dealing with that. But uh, when I would step up, it's kind of um, like Professor Cobb over here was talking about. Uh, you know, I, it was seen as almost reverse racism when uh, I would speak up and say some things that uh, I believe were true. It didn't mean I was right. It doesn't mean I was right, but I still had to have a, a certain uh, reservation in the way I approach things or else I would not have been taken seriously. Uh, and I was involved in a lot of different things like th that were like that in college. Um, I had a teacher who, there was a, a young lady, there were only two African Americans in the class at the time, and she was a little more confrontational. He would give a lot of different examples that were racist in tone. And uh, she was a little bit more confrontational than I was. Uh, I mean, I would have chose to talk to him after class, but she would say things uh, in class. And she got upset and walked out the room. And his response was to me, you know, Delwyn, uh, uh, you don't think I'm racist, do you? You know, I didn't. She was she was overweight, and this was his statement now that she was overweight. I didn't I didn't notice that she was black, and that kind of statement always bothers me because how could he not know that? And he would always look at us every time he would talk about uh, black issues. You know, it's little things like that, and then. Being the only African American in most situations that I've been involved in, um, there's always a uh, uh, responsibility to, to, to carry the, the load for African Americans. Uh, me personally, I don't mind because I like it. You know, I like to be able to step up and try to do things. I think that I'm, if I'm in a position to do something, great. But the responsibility is always there, just because of who I am. So um, that's another part of it uh, as well. So. Kevin? Uh, the short answer to that question would be no. I've never been discriminated against. Uh, very similar answer to Professor Cobb. Uh, but just to elaborate on that, I think that, uh, to me, discrimination is where you're treated uh, unequally in a, in a negative way based on, on who you are. And prior to discrimination, you need to generally have a stereotype of lumping somebody into a category based on who they are. And as Ricky pointed out, uh, we have race as a social construction, and there's other ways that we socially construct our identity. I mean, uh, you know, am I just a white male? Am I just a political science instructor? You know, I think that we have overlapping identities, and sometimes we are uh, compartmentalized based on one attribute, and then sometimes we are treated differently. I can't say that I can I have any experiences that can you know touch touch on what. Uh, we've heard so far, but um, you know, I think that I have been stereotyped before. Have I gone to a restaurant and maybe been treated unequally based on being considered young and potentially not a good tipper? Yes. <laughs> have I been in neighborhoods where a police officer has looked at me and said, what are you doing in this neighborhood? Yes. But I don't think I can even <clears throat> compare with any of the experiences um, that Delwyn has, has pointed out. So I'll leave my answer at that. Amy, how about you? Um, I guess as a woman, subtly, um, but 
I really see myself as inhabiting two different worlds. I present, I'm out in the world, and I'm treated primarily as a white woman. Um, my self-identity may be different, and definitely within my family that identity shifts. Um, so I, I'm constantly aware of the way that race plays out on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, I've had family members ask me to return items to the store for them because I will get the refund and they will be questioned more heavily. Um, I've had to make phone calls for people because I sound a certain way when I talk on the phone and they might get different treatment based on the way they sound. So I think I've, I've kind of always had this way things are and then the way things really are. <laughs> You know, the way that we like to believe things are um, is not reality for a lot of people. Um, one of the things I brought up when we were in discussion, and I might be dating myself, but there was a, a Saturday Night Live skit where Eddie Murphy was white for a day, and he went into the banks, and they were giving away money, and he went to get a house, and they were, you know, and he was like, oh my gosh, is this what it's really like? Um, and I think that's really the, the, the dramatic difference in the experiences of people of color and Caucasian people. There are two totally different realities. And I think um, psychology can explain some of that in terms of the way we think. The first thing we see is gender. Second thing is race. Those are the first things that we process. And um, some pretty disturbing studies have surfaced recently. One of them I brought up, um, there was a study out of Stanford recently, uh, just done uh, by several really prominent researchers talking about the fact that many Caucasian Americans, over 70%, are still subconsciously associating African Americans with AIDS. Okay? Now that sounds horrible. Um, and it is. But that's the reality. You know, that's what we're still dealing with. And what happens then is that we're more likely to um, condone violence against blacks because there's this kind of subhuman thing going on, again, at an unconscious level. And it continues to trickle down in a number of subtle ways. I don't think that there's as much overt discrimination but there is definitely subtle discrimination. I mean, I've gone into look at houses by myself and then gone in with other family members and had totally different reactions in terms of the availability of the housing or is this a good place to live. So I think I've had a unique experience based on my appearance being able to look at it from both sides. Kevin, why do you think we still have inequalities between the races and persistent segregation in America in 2008? It's hard to know where to begin with that. Um, I think that there's no single bullet uh, you know, answer to that question. There's a, a host of, of factors that are playing together. Uh, you know, both at a macro and both at a, and also at an individual level, um, but just to maybe in a, a, in a simple way, I could start with where I live, and I, I think that where you live confers many benefits 
and um, can reinforce some of the stereotypes that can lead to, to discrimination. You know, where you live, uh, in part, determines what schools you go to, starting you know at a very early level, and um, the types of funding that you get uh, uh, to your school. Now, many of the schools in Chicago are completely uh, and realistically segregated to a point where a vast majority of our students, 87% of our students in the public schools in Chicago uh, are of color. And when you look at public financing of education versus some of the suburban and uh, exurban uh, schools versus some of the inner city schools, you see that some of the uh, schools have a, a three-to-one advantage as far as the educational dollars towards their, their education. And that has implications. Um, so I guess I would start with where you live, the benefits that uh, are conferred on where you live, specifically education. You mentioned housing. Uh, 43% of all of the wealth that whites have is with their, with their uh, home equity. But it's 63% for blacks. And if you look at these houses, if you look at the neighborhoods in Chicago and the home values, and you mentioned when you go around looking at houses, studies still show this. You can, you can have a white family um, being showed up or go to a real estate agent that has uh, lower credit scores, lower income than a black family, and the, the real estate agent will still direct them to certain neighborhoods, not show them as many listings. So we have, you know, you mentioned subtle uh, racism going on, uh, subtle discrimination. That plays a part. Where we live plays a part. And maybe I'll kind of defer to some of the other panel members and maybe come back to some of the other factors that I think are important. But I think we need to keep in mind that there's a whole host of factors going on here. And uh, to really understand this, we have to try to bring as many in, into the equation as possible. Ricky? Well, uh, why do we still have inequality between races and segregation? I would say pick up a history book. You know, it took hundreds of years to get to this point. You know, one thing that I've learned having small children um, is that it's easier to destroy something than to build something. You know, I have one little girl throwing a fit because the other little girl came along and kicked over the blocks that she meticulously put up over, you know, the whole afternoon. It takes one second to destroy it. So I think there's a little bit of a... Uh, unrealistic uh, expectation here, particularly on the part of white America in terms of we pass a few laws and everything should be okay magically, even though we're talking about hundreds of years to get to this point and we're expecting this uh, problem and these attitudes to shift and everything's just going to somehow magically be equal uh, just because we say that we want it to be. Uh, there are a few answers to this, and I'll try to give them briefly. I would say, uh, first of all, let me ask you a question. Most people in this country that are wealthy, where did they get their wealth? Where did it come from? It's inherited, okay? Uh, the wealth concentration in this country is still with white people, primarily, okay? And many of them accumulated their fortunes in times when the playing ground was hardly level, Okay? You could make the case that a lot of the fortunes that have been accumulated uh, that many white Americans enjoy today were made on the backs of slaves. Okay, In fact, I'll say that. I think that that's true in many cases. 
Now, I don't necessarily think that people today have to apologize for what happened six or seven generations ago, but I will say this. When the power and the wealth is concentrated so much with a particular demographic of the population, okay, it becomes a momentum game after a while. That white privilege, both the economic privilege, the social benefits, they get passed down. Okay, the stereotypes become more and more ingrained. The negative stereotypes that uh, are used to marginalize minorities, they become more and more ingrained in people's consciousness. Um, as far as segregation goes, I think Kevin uh, you know, was alluding to institutional discrimination, the economic realities of these things. Uh, you know, most of us, we, we live where our parents lived. And in a lot of cases, we live where our grandparents lived. They're not far from there. And you can change a law. You can, you can integrate society in some ways legally, but what if I can't afford to leave the neighborhood that I live in? I may be trapped economically, not because a law is keeping me there or because people say you can't go to the other side of the street, although I think that still goes on. I think people are discouraged subtly and sometimes not so subtly from living in certain areas or from moving into certain communities. That still exists. But a lot of it has become economic. It's institutionalized discrimination. There may not be an intent to discriminate in some cases, but the end result is, is that uh, in many cases, minorities, because of the disproportionate amount of wealth that is concentrated um, among whites in this society, uh, suffer the consequences of just not having enough income in many cases to get a fair chance to move up in society. And, you know, again, we come back to ignorance, mistrust, fear. You know, these things, I would say, you know, I'm optimistic. I really am optimistic about the state of race relations. I'm optimistic about the state of gender relations. Uh, I'm, I'm optimistic about uh, progress that we're making in terms of, uh, of uh, understanding and accepting people that may have a different sexual orientation, religion, so on and so forth. I see it in the young people in my classroom. I'm, I think this generation is better, by and large, in terms of tolerance and understanding than my parents' generation. And I think that the next generation will be better, too. But I think we're kidding ourselves if we think that all of a sudden we're going to pass a few laws and we're going to, in 30 or 40 years, we're going to fix something that took much, much, much longer than that to mess up. Dylan, how about you? Why do we still have inequalities and segregation in 2008 in the United States? Well, first of all, I think Ricky made a good point when he said the, uh, you know, the power... Uh, structure is, is designed to put, and you know, and, and here's the deal, and, and here's another uh, disadvantage I have as an African American male. You know, I don't want, you know, if, if I keep hearing all, if I'm a white male and I keep hearing all this stuff being sounded, like, oh, wait a minute, you know, why is everybody pointing the finger at me? You know, why am I the bad guy? You know, and it's not necessary that you're the bad guy. Um, there's uh, something that we've mentioned here before called white privilege. You are uh, a benefactor of some things that have happened uh, throughout our history. Slavery plays a major role in why we are in the position that we're in today. Uh, and this generation seems to have a difficult time uh, understanding that. Um, and I, get, I gave a speech about three years ago about this uh, in the college center. And one of the questions that uh, came after that speech was, you know, why is it that black people were always complaining? Why don't they 
pull the, what's the bootstraps up, whatever the saying is, and go to work like everybody else. Everyone has the same opportunity to make it today. You know, you keep bringing up all this stuff in the past, and you're not looking at the present, and you're not looking at the future. And, but there's a, there's a major disadvantage. And if you don't understand what slavery um, did, when you got out of slavery, you didn't have anything as an African-American. Uh, and, and as I talk about this, I have not forgot the Latino community, the Arab community, um, a lot of people that have um, come to our country in recent years. Uh, but my experience is dealing with this um, area of inequality. And when you came out, you had nothing. Okay, so let's say you had one dollar, but someone else that uh, was born the same day you had, you were born, has ten dollars, and you work hard, and both parties work hard, and you work hard and work hard, and you double your money. Well, the African that was in America becomes uh, has two dollars, whereas the slave owner now has twenty dollars. Okay, so we talked about inheritance. So what does the child inherit? The child inherits $20. The slave owner, the former slave owner, what does the former slave inherit? $2. So what you have is you have something that goes in inheritance is a major, have you ever heard of something called old money? You know, old money comes back from days. And we found out that a lot of these corporations developed and, 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 and became major corporations because of actually having slave labor to help produce um, and, and to be able to, to, to get themselves to the point they are today. But this generation has a hard time seeing what's happening today and connecting that to what happened in the past. Uh, so you're going to have those inequalities. Now that's, just, that's just the financial part. The, the, the psychological part is another deal. And when you get to the point, and there was a lot of brainwashing, I mean, the, the African was taught to, to hate his skin. He was taught to hate his hair, his nose. Anything that was African, the, the, the African was to taught that it was bad, that it was a negative thing. So what are you going to give to your children? You're going to give that same philosophy to your children. Okay, so then when you grow up, you're seeing some of the same things, and you see that, well... My father isn't this big banker. My father doesn't have so-and-so. And as the generations go on, that's, that's there. And a, it affects uh, our society today. Even our youth in black America right now, there are some I've, I was talking to a few people that are still at the school now. I won't say their names. But uh, a couple of African-American young women said there isn't any racism, uh, that there aren't any equalities, that we all have the same opportunity. And... Other experiences showed me that they weren't quite, uh, they didn't quite understand the positions they were in. When I was recruiting at St. Xavier, and I don't want to talk too long, I've been trying to hold back for a second, but uh, when I was at St. Xavier University, uh, I was a recruiter, and I would go to different high schools. I would go uh, to a lot of the Chicago high schools where the population was predominantly black, and then I would come out, even Sandburg and and stag, and I just saw a different environment. The infrastructure was completely different. Uh, one of the schools in the city of Chicago, the predominantly black, had, this was back in 1990 now, but had one computer in the office. That was it. The principal did not have a computer in uh, her office. Uh, there were no computers 
in the classrooms. Uh, and this is even back in 1990, I remember coming to some high schools out in the suburbs where it was predominantly white, and they had computers in the classroom. The whole just environment was completely different. And the student in that environment in the city is going to have a different experience than one would out in the suburbs at that particular time. That's just something that I would see because I would go to, uh, say, Curie High School at 10 o'clock and see one and that was, not, that was pretty good, good uh, high school, especially back in ni 1990. I don't know what it's like now, but it was a pretty good high school. And I saw that condition. Then I would come over. I'm not, I'm not sure if it was Sandberg or not, but I'm just using Sandberg. I go to Sandberg, I see a completely different uh, situation. So that's something that these young students had to deal with. And some of those students don't even know the privileges or the disadvantages they have because they're only in their own environment. So that's why... Uh, inequalities are there. There are probably going to be some issues with that for a while, but the only thing we can do is work on it, discuss these things openly, and then try to find out if we can come up with a solution. Bill? Yes. This has been kind of a polite uh, conversation so far. And, uh, I think on this question, we've also got to talk about culture. Uh, Bill Cosby is going around scolding a lot of audiences for their, their cultural habits and saying that uh, blacks have to uh, be self-empowered. And there's a very interesting article in the Atlantic Monthly this month that compares him with Malcolm X, that he's not really uh, such a paternal Uncle Tom figure, that Bill Cosby is really telling uh, people themes that were similar to what Malcolm X was trying to say. And, and I just think we've got to get onto this topic of culture, if you're going to talk about why there's still discrimination and, and prejudice. I mean, isn't there a culture of poverty, and, and isn't there a, a culture that's going nowhere, and a culture that's got to take more responsibility? Yeah. I'll, anyway, I'll start with that. My grandmother was a slave. Uh, I'll start with that. Um, and... Uh, I think the first thing I would say, just to, to, to kind of connect these two themes of the of the past, the present, the macro, and the individual factors, uh, Professor Cobb brought up the wealth and the inheritance. When we see uh, white families have uh, a median income, or I'm sorry, wealth of $118,000, and we see black families have 10% of that at $11,800, that's the median. Uh, wealth of whites versus blacks. That starts with something, right? If you look at the difference, though, taking two parent families into consideration, it tells a much different story. Uh, it's instead of having only 10% uh, of the wealth of, of, of white families, it diminishes down to, to 29%. So how do we get to this? How do we get to this factor? Why do why do we have some of these cultural factors going on that you referred to. I think that with any group of people, having two parent families, having two incomes are very important. Um, and I, I don't know how to, to, to stress this enough, but I think that sometimes we do want to, any group of people have, have their own culture that can lead to, 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 to issues, but I don't think we want to go too far down that direction without looking at some of the bigger pictures that people rely on. Um, 
I think that the bigger picture to look at is what has led to these historical disadvantages. And I think that we can address the cultural issues, but how do you say, you know, back to the example that uh, Professor Jones brought up of, of people not starting out with equal footing. And I think it's a, it's a touchy subject because everybody wants to say that the starting line should be equal right now. Let's go forward. Everybody's equal, and everybody should have the same opportunity, right? We all start at the same starting line, and let's go forward. But do we truly have that? And I think in some cases, uh, there's, there's merit to look at families and what's going on, cultural factors. My concern is by doing that, um, we're ignoring some of these other factors that uh, are leading to these, to these disadvantages. Again, to bring up another study, look, uh, I think it was done by the Chicago Tribune, of looking at uh, hiring practices, uh, of, of who gets the callbacks when you apply for a job. Well, one way we can distinguish races by, is by last names. And there, the, the studies showed that the, you know, having a black surname is less likely to get a call back. Now, I tried to stress earlier about where you live. How many people in here have gotten a job based on who you know? I mean, honestly, think about it. Never had a job because of a neighbor? Never had a job because of a friend of yours at school? Where you live confers benefits. And I think of, you know... You don't need to raise your hand. I've seen studies that show 60% of all the jobs aren't even listed. And based on who you know, that has a big opportunity of where you could go. So I think it's important, and maybe we should address some of these cultural factors. I'll give up the mic now, but I think it's important that we can't divorce ourselves from the past. It does have um, an influence on where we go. But I think we do also want to address that why there might be some resentment of people who, when we do have these special you know, hiring practices and affirmative action, uh, that's part of the equation as well. And I, just to kind of go along with what you were saying, Kevin, um, one of the, the things I think going back to the question but also tying this uh, other question in, um, part of the way we are made and created based on even like from a neurological standpoint going back to psychology is that we affiliate with those that are like us on a neurological level we recognize faces better that are similar to us than faces that are different than us um, from an evolutionary standpoint that allowed us to survive somebody was like me maybe they'll help me so it would make sense that we would want to affiliate with people who are like us so part of the segregation piece is that we have to go against our biological instinct we have to move in the opposite direction if we want to promote integration or promote more interaction because that's not our natural tendency. Our natural tendency is to reach out to those that are similar to us, to those who are like us, not to those that are different than us. So part of the segregation is taking an active stand to go move against that natural tendency. And I think the other thing something that Kevin was talking about tying into this question, something called the fundamental attribution error. And it's a really important concept because it's something that we all do. And it's the way that we think about things. The fundamental attribution error says that um, there's a bias. When we observe somebody else's beliefs or somebody else's behavior that's different than us, we attribute their behavior to internal circumstances, not external circumstances. So we immediately look at another cultural group and we say, oh, you know, they're doing that because they're this way, rather than they're doing that because of external forces that might be oops, I'm sorry, impinging upon 
them. Um, and so I think we also have to fight that tendency to step back and say, wait a minute, is this internal? Is this something that's a character issue? Or is this something that's really based on external factors? And I think that Kevin was mentioning some of those. Oh, oh good. So is there any issues you can give, like a real-life example? Because I understand what you can, but it's not clear to me. Like, you the, the fundamental attribution error? Yeah. I'm sorry. Um, the okay. The, the comment about the fundamental attribution. Okay. So the fundamental attribution error. It's a psychological concept. Basically, a way that we think. Um, really, kind of a shortcut in terms of our thinking. It conserves our mental energy. So if I want to attribute behavior to somebody that's different or somebody other than me, I'll attribute their behavior to internal mechanisms rather than, sorry, I use my hands too much, rather than external circumstances. So I might say, oh, well, the reason, you know, I was yelling at the clerk is because I was having a bad day. But the reason you were yelling at the clerk is because you're just a nasty person. You know, I would, care, I would make a character assumption rather than, oh, maybe you were having a bad day. I'm not going to attribute to the external environment. I'm going to attribute the behavior to more internal traits. And that's what we do for people that are different than us on a regular basis. It's just, again, a natural tendency that we have to think in that way. So fighting against it becomes something that we have to actively do. Again, so changing these patterns, the segregation, the discrimination, requires an active effort. It's not something that we can just sit back and say, oh, this is going to you know, get better. Say, Look at things are changing. Everybody needs to take an active role in fighting against these kinds of typical ways we think about things. I think what Bill was, was trying to say, um, I, I think he was pointing that idea we're talking about, and correct me if I'm wrong, now we're speaking about the external factors, and we're not dealing with the internal factors. Am I right? Oh no, no. Actually, you see, to me, and we, as a panel, we all talked about how there's so much that we won't have enough time to talk about. There was, that was a part of our discussion as well. But that there is some reality to that, in my opinion. There are things that, uh, although the external factors are there, I still think there are times when you really got to step up. I mean, I'm a basketball coach, and, and, and I would tell my players, if another player is taller than you are and faster, that means you're going to give up because the odds are against you? No, you need to fight harder. As a matter of fact, you can least afford to not put yourself in the best possible position uh, to be successful. There are some things, and I believe, and I, when I would go to the, and I believe that there are major external factors, and I'm glad you, you brought that concept up. There are major external factors, but there are some internal things as well. When I would go over to the high schools and talk to these um, young Af African-American students, um, I would talk about internal factors. I would tell them, yes, their external factors are there, but we have to do some things differently. Uh, Bill Cosby was not far off from Malcolm X at all. I agree with that. Malcolm, as a matter of fact, uh, a lot, if you listen to his concepts, the uh, things that Malcolm X talked about, a lot of people could perhaps put him in a, in a, in a could label him as a Republican almost. 
uh, Malcolm X really came down hard on African Americans. If you really listen to his speeches, he said, you know, hey, no one put those drugs in front of you. No one uh, put you in the position where uh, you can't do something for yourself. He said, get up, do things for yourself. You know, take care of your own thing. Don't count on somebody else who really doesn't love you to do something for you. You get up and do it yourself. The only person that cares about you is you. So you get up and make it happen. So I understand the internal factors that they are there, okay? And, and a lot of people say, well, other people come from other uh, countries and they set up their own business and uh, it may just be a little rat race initially but then they grows into something and uh, why can't the African American do that and see I believe the external factors have greatly affected the internal factors uh, and, and that's my argument and that's, that's the, the direction that I'm coming from is that we've got to deal with these things we've got to deal with both you know from the African American community we have to deal with both of those issues but I don't care what I do I'm still going to deal with some things that other people of other races don't have to deal with. No matter how successful I am, no matter what I do, I mean, I was the only African-American in my department for a very long time. Uh, I've had students come up to me and say, in my class, uh, there were movies that I never saw before. Uh, he made a recommendation of a movie he was more familiar with. It was completely scratched off. There was no way they were going to look at that movie. We watched, at different cultures, watched different shows. The shows that I may watch, you may not watch, just based on your cultural background. So your learning experience is going to be affected just by the color of your skin. That doesn't mean that if I'm in that class, I'm not going to, inside me, say, look, this is the situation I'm dealing with. I'm going to make the best possible position for me and get the best grade out of this class. And some people decide, this is not fair, and they quit, and they give up. You know, that's your fault. You know, you've got to be stronger than that, especially the position to win. I'm sorry. No, I, I, I agree with you. Um, I mean, we all, I think it goes without saying, we all have a, a personal responsibility and accountability to live our lives as best we can for our own families and to try and be as productive as we can within the society. I don't think anybody can sit around and ex uh, expect somebody to just hand them something. What was it that Mark Twain said? The world doesn't owe you anything. It's been here longer than you. Uh, I probably butchered that, but it, I think that's the point. Um, the thing that concerns me a little bit here is that, you know, when the, with what Bill Cosby says, and I respect Bill Cosby, and I respect a lot of the things that, that he has to say, but I would also say this. One of the things that concerns me a little bit is I think some, some white people um, will take Bill Cosby's comments and change the context and turn it into something that deflects any responsibility away from white America and says, oh, well, see, there's a black guy that understands. See, that's a problem within the black community, and therefore white people can just uh, wash their hands of it and, and walk away. Mm -hmm. And that's not, that's not what Bill Cosby's saying, and that's, that's not the reality. The, 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 the fact of the matter is, is that people of all races, people of all religions, uh, people of all creeds, we all have a responsibility to do the best we can. And quite frankly, if I were a minority in this country, I wouldn't, based on the track record, I wouldn't spend a lot of time holding my breath waiting for uh, society to do a lot for me. Because we don't have a very sterling uh, record uh, in a lot of ways in this society. So, so the concern that I have here is, yes, you know, let, let's take various perspectives, but, but let's, not, let's not get into a situation where we blame the victim. You take something like... Uh, uh, Bill Cosby's remarks, and you'll see it become almost like a, it's like dog pile on now, because now, you know, that's given some white people, they'll feel that they have license now 
to say that because, well, Bill Cosby said it, so therefore, you know, I can echo those sentiments from maybe a different perspective than Bill Cosby, and they think that they have the guise of social uh, acceptability at that point. And that's, that's the thing that concerns me. I remember uh, giving a lecture back at the University of Louisville uh, a number of years ago before I came to Moraine, and I had a pretty outspoken African-American female student who uh, sat near the front of the lecture hall. And she was, she was very outspoken. I would say that she was, uh, she was maybe a little more liberal than most in her political orientation. And uh, one day in class, there was a uh, white female student, as it happened to be, back, way back in the lecture hall. And she raised her hand and she said, well, if you've got so many problems and complaints about society, why don't you just go and do something about it instead of complaining about it all the time? Hmm. Well, I was a very inexperienced new teacher at that time. And I, it was like one of those like Southwest Airlines commercials, you know. It's like, you know, want to get away? <laughs> and I'm standing up on stage with 100 people here looking at me, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm a new teacher. You know, how am I? Fortunately, for, it, was the, it was at the end of class. <laughs> and so I had a chance to uh, go and talk to some, uh, some of my uh, more experienced colleagues and try to figure out how am I going to try and turn that into a learning experience. The, the, the fact of the matter is we want to be very careful. You know, there's a concept called modern racism, you know, which in some cases could be seen as racism without the uh, intent, you know, to blame the victim. This is, this is your, you should do something about it. And it's like what Kevin was saying earlier. You know, could you imagine if we played a game of Monopoly? And I said, we're going to play Monopoly, and we're going to see uh, who can win this game. Now, before we start, I'm going to take Boardwalk and Park Place, and I'm going to take the Utilities, and I'm going to take uh, one of those two little El Cheapos where I can take your $200 every time you come around. And now we'll start the game and we'll play. And you say, well, that's not fair. I say, well, just try harder. Try, you, know, you need to roll a six, so just concentrate real hard and roll a six. And I think that to a, a large extent, that is what we've told minorities in this society. Is there any white person in this room that would rather be a minority in terms of uh, having advantages in the workplace, in terms of uh, being socially accepted by strangers or people that you might encounter? I mean, really, is there any white person in this room that says, yes, I would rather be Arab and have people uh, uh, misperceive me as a terrorist wherever I go? Would I, is there any white person in this room that would rather be a black male who is, I think, in many ways the scapegoat for all kinds of social ills in our society and have people fear that they're going to try to rob you or they're going to do something to you? I mean, really? Is there any white person that would trade? And so for me, that becomes... Uh, you know, I've always, been, I've always supported affirmative action, and I've supported affirmative action as an attempt to level a, an otherwise, uh, you know, uh, unfair playing field. Now, to me, the most compelling argument against affirmative action is you have to ask yourself, is it doing more damage in creating ill will among white people than it's doing in leveling the playing field? Is it doing... Is it doing a poor job of PR that negates any good that is caused from creating a, a, a fair system. But you know, I can tell you right now, as a, as a white male, I didn't ask for it, but as a white male, if I go and apply for a job, you know, depending on where I apply for that job, I'm going to, I'm going to have an advantage 
over a number of other applicants just due to the biases that that employer may have. And I'm not saying that every employer is biased, but I'm saying that people are biased. You know, police officers are biased. Construction workers are biased. Teachers are biased. You know, candlestick makers are biased. So, you know, let's be real about the society that we live in here. And the fact is, you know, white people have had an easier path. Now, does that mean that minorities don't have an obligation upon themselves to work extra hard? You know, no, I don't think that it means. I think you have to do the best you can with uh, the situation that you're in. But I get a little queasy, you know, when I hear things like my student years ago at the University of Louisville who made that observation, and then people applauded her. Okay, people actually applauded that. I heard three or four people applauded. I thought, man, we've got some anger beneath the surface here. And I think we need to be real about that. That's one of the reasons that people don't like to talk about the issue, is that they're afraid that it's going to explode into something where that, that anger is going to boil to the surface and they don't know how to handle that. Sorry, I went on a little long. But yes? So we established how we got here. History through, through looking at racism up there beneath you. We've established how we've let it continue not talking about it and established, you know, what what steps our government is taking, even though our government is not really representative of, of the, how diverse we really are as a nation, it seems that it, it's going at one demographic that has all the wealth. And, and once we change that, hopefully we'll change our policies. But before that, I mean, if you just look now in 2008, there are 60% of, of Clinton voters will not vote for Obama if he wins the nominee. They will switch their, their entire political theory and vote for McCain just because McCain's a white man. And I'm, how, do you reach, how do you reach those people? How do you reach those Americans, those that don't go to the rain, that don't see you know, different races every day, those that, you know, that just live in those homogeneous towns and, and hear one thing? How do you reach those? How do you tell those people to, to stop thinking the way they thought? Because that's what this ultimately is. We have to stop the train of thought that is continued for, you know, way too long. I, I put a lot of my hope in, the, in this generation, the youth. Um, he wants to know... Uh, but I think the... Um, I, how, do you, how do you reach those Americans who don't live what we live as the first, you know, urban citizens? How do you reach those that don't really know that this is the time to change? Well, I was going to say that I put a lot of hope uh, in this generation uh, of wanting to change. Um, this kind of conversation um, decades ago would not have ever really been effective. Uh, I think that we still have a lot of issues that are on the table, but there have been some improvements. And my generation, including myself, um, and no matter what culture, racial, ethnic background you have, some of us sometimes we a little, I think, a little more closed-minded. Hopefully, your generation can open up and uh, have some more dialogue and to be able to talk about these things. Um, if you just spread the word and. And, and try to keep a positive approach to things and, and try to understand what other people are going through, I think that's going to be uh, a major deal. Because I don't think it's just those that are in rural America. I mean, we even look at, I mean, uh, not the term we get in trouble now, but Dr. Uh, Jeremiah Wright's conversation, uh, the speech that he gave, um, based on your cultural background, you have a different perspective on what he said. Now, I know a lot of African Americans who understand where Reverend Wright was coming from. Okay, they may not have totally agree with exactly how he said it, 
but they understood where he was coming from. And there are some people uh, that have political power uh, would never understand that. And uh, I believe someone was asking on CNN whether they were just trying to get uh, Barack Obama and a response, I forget the gentleman, he said, no, he said, some people really believe that Reverend Wright is just a pure racist, anti-American, um, and, and, and just has nothing but negative things to say about America. Um, where one of our former presidents almost said the same thing that Reverend Wright said, that America is going to pay for the sins that we have put on uh, abroad. So... But Reverend Wright is somebody that comes from an African American church, and the way he said it, it was some people took that one way, and others looked at it another way. Your generation is going to have to be the ones that are going to get up and talk about this issue to one another and be honest. My basketball team, every year, I try to make sure that we get a chance to know. This year we have four Latinos, uh, uh, four African American players, and four white players. Am I wrong? Something like that. And I, 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 I want to make it weak. When we out to eat, I mean, they're just a reflection of our society. When we out to eat, there's a tendency to go and sit with someone that you're comfortable with. Take the time to sit with somebody else. You have the opportunity while you're in college, you do your job. Get to know somebody uh, from a white background, black background, Hispanic background. Talk to them. See how they feel. Uh, Bill shouldn't feel that he can't ask that question. Those are the kind of questions that we need to ask and bring to the table. Because he doesn't say it. We had a conversation and he goes away um, dissatisfied. And nothing has been accomplished. So those are the conversations that we have to have. That's the way we get it. You start your inner circle, and hopefully that spreads to everyone else. Another question in the back? I have a question. Um, I So that that perhaps the the numbers and statistics um, are actually influencing uh, people's feelings about race and segregation. Yeah, because it's like if I was a minority and I kept hearing all the same statistics, well, whites have this and that and this and that, whites have only a certain percentage of it, I'd be like, you know, well, what's the chance of me actually making this? So why should I even try? And that's a positive approach that um, 
I would definitely support. Um, some don't. Some don't see it that way. Uh, I understand what the gentleman is saying. If you put out statistics to say that you're not going to make it anyway, that gives you more reason to quit. And uh, but here's the deal. I I, st I believe in truth. You know, I, I, I always believe in doing the right thing. I mean, I tr in my life, I just try to do what's right. But and I also believe in truth. Truth should be put on the table. And if those are the realities that we, we should look at those realities and then try to fix them. Uh, I think if you try to ignore those things, that's why things simmer and we don't get to the bottom of uh, what we try to uh, work out there. So I, I, I like the idea that we have the knowledge. We know what's happening. We know what's there. Now it's time to be able to deal with it. Uh, how many students here feel like they are at a disadvantage when they're trying to uh, go to a college and then some other uh, minority person gets your slot. You know, you feel that's unfair. We need to talk about that. Those, that, if that's a reality, then we need to talk about that and get ourselves to the point where they, we can have some real, true discussion. Some of us may be scared to talk about Reverend Wright. Are we? Are we scared to talk about that? It's going along with your question about these statistics. Uh, why not put everything on the table and discuss it? Why not put everything on the table, have a real discussion about it, and then see if we can come with some answers? Troy? We're getting close to out of time, but I think before everyone goes, I'd really like to ask about the panel's views of uh, Barack Obama and the current uh, presidential campaign and his speech, speech on race and uh, how that shifted our discussion. Most depressing thing that I've uh, seen all year was on an internet uh, message board. <laughs> Where, and that's saying, there's a lot of depressing things on those. Um, you know, Obama's speech, how many of you heard his speech? Okay. Uh, I think generally the reviews of the speech were obviously very favorable. A lot of people were saying it's, uh, you know, one of the greatest speeches on that subject in American history. Um, Full disclosure, I'm an Obama supporter, but I thought the speech was 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 very good. Uh, but however, uh, I was uh, reading some of the reactions online, and this was just a random internet commenter, so you know, let's not give it any more credibility than it deserves. But the person, the, the exact quote was, "Well, that was just another let's blame Whitey speech." I thought, did you hear the same speech that I did? Did you listen to the speech? It was a very, very powerful speech about people coming together and seeing the problem, dealing with the problem in a different way. And I thought, wow, you know, not to, end, not to try and end on a depressing note, but I thought, wow, we really have a lot of work to do when somebody can listen to that speech and come to that conclusion. I thought that the speech spoke to the nuances of race. Uh, I thought he touched on some discussions that most people wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole, uh, one of which bringing up his grandmother, I think, which was and one of the ways, the big criticism I've heard in, in some circles, that he would bring throw his grandmother under the bus for, for sometimes uh, his white grandmother for, for seeing uh, an African-American and, and acting different, almost like in the, the, the movie Crash. Um, but I think what he touched on is that it's complex, that we have, uh, you know, 
he can no longer, you know, divorce himself from the black community and, and Reverend Wright from, from the comments that he made, uh, just like he can't divorce himself from his, his, his white ancestors and, and some of the stereotypes and discrimination that they engage in. And I think uh, it was a very strong speech, uh, a difficult speech to give. And, 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 and although many people think it's a great speech, I think in the long run he might be hurt electorally because of it because again it accentuates race and Scott in the back of the room brought up you know with uh, applications putting your uh, circle if this if you're this race and circle this if you're that race by accentuating race I think in some cases some people become more attuned to it and in some circles of, of the United States um, they might be less likely to support an African American candidate because of it. Um, I guess I would agree with both Ricky and Kevin's comments on the speech. I think that um, it's time. I think he's in a unique position, being um, biracial, to be able to discuss a lot of the issues that um, that come up with race. Um, he, although he's been criticized, I think it's brought up a number of issues um, that we haven't talked about. That is he black enough? You know, what does that mean? What are we really talking about when we're identifying those kind of factors? And it's brought up some interesting discussions I know in my classroom as well. So I think it's good for sparking discussion. I think it's good that, that these issues are coming up in the political arena. Um, I think that they have not been discussed um, with any comprehensiveness up to this point in, in politics. And again, not a political, but... Um, that's been my experience with it. So um, I agree. I thought it was a great speech, and um, I think it's gone a long way to making people converse about the topic. Darwin, the final word? I don't know why I'm giving the final word, but... I'll take it away. Uh, okay. <laughs> you know I want to talk. Um, I like Barack Obama's speech. I thought it was a good speech. Uh, I'm a support, Obama supporter as well. But uh, I almost wish he wasn't running for president when he gave the speech, you know, only because I think that there were some things he could not say um, because uh, a major part of America would not accept uh, what he had, if he had really, really spoken the, the, the complete truth about Reverend Wright's comments. You know, um, if Reverend Wright had not been uh, African American, maybe that would have been um, seen from a different light as well. But... Um, I thought it was a good speech. I thought it was a good speech. It touched on some things. It got us started. It got, got some conversation. Even if there were some negative responses, uh, it created conversation that had America talking for a little while. So uh, hopefully this doesn't stop and uh, we can continue this conversation. I would be glad to talk with anybody about this situation and give my. Doesn't mean I'm right. I just have my opinion. So we got to close out. Troy's coming over with the big hammer. <laughs> I just want to thank everybody for coming and especially thank our panel. Give them one more hand. This is important. Um, we have the honors showcase in the library April 23rd and May 1st. The psychology department is holding um, a panel discussion. I hope everyone comes. Thanks for coming today. Bye. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.